Good morning and welcome here. It's good to have you here today. Uh, a couple announcements and then we'll have a prayer time. Um, one is we're doing uh, church Christmas decorating next Sunday. Uh, you're all invited. Show up at 5 o'clock. We'll provide pizza and drinks and, and other snacks. And uh, we'll, we'll get this place squared away for Christmas. Last time we actually had a lot of fun doing it. It was real good. Um, also, the MCC Meat Canner is coming to town uh, November 23 to 25. Uh, some of you have helped with that in the past. It is a, a really neat deal, um, canning huge quantities of, of turkey then that goes all over the world to help out some people uh, less fortunate. And uh, they start at 5.30 a.m. and go till 10 p.m. So if you're a morning person or night person, they can accommodate you either way. Um, there's also kind of a bit of a tradition of some people helping out with some of the food. So some of you have gotten notes from uh, Charlene. Uh, any questions uh, about that, just talk to Charlene about that, and she'll get you squared away because there's, um, yeah, you know, they got to eat as well, too. So, And also to let you know, um, Kids Time is doing some shoe boxes, and so uh, I think there's an opportunity to either uh, give items or even just give cash as well, too. So uh, a couple other announcements, of course, in your bulletin, as always. I encourage you to check those out, but uh, let's pray and carry on. Heavenly Father, thanks for a good day. Thanks for your word that is true. Thank you for your spirit that is present. Thank you for the love of the Father that has saved us from our sins. God, we ask that, uh, that we would learn from you today, that you would be our teacher. 
Lord, as we prepare to enter into a time of worship and of thanksgiving and of praise, um, that our hearts would be undistracted, Lord, uh, that we would be able to give you all the praise and worship and glory that you deserve because you are beautiful and wonderful. We worship you and we love you. Amen. Amen. Please stand with us as we worship God this morning. As always, feel free to raise hands, feel free to sing, shout out loud, worship the Lord as you, um, as God allows you and as he leads you. Feel free to sit whenever, feel free to stand. We want this to be a, a place where you are free to worship. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts
to put our faith and trust in you and know that you are with us always.
about evangelism in a little bit. And really at the heart of evangelism is just our reality that people need Jesus. And uh, as I look at the prayer requests today, I'm, I'm struck by how many of them center around uh, people need Jesus. And uh, you can see a number of the prayer requests from the missionaries kind of revolve around that. Um, the students, are the, the youth are getting ready to attend the Central District Youth Conference in Fremont this week.
excited about today's message. For a long time, I've been wondering or kind of looking for an opportunity to uh, to share on this, just kind of to give you a bit of a schedule for, for where we're going over the next couple months. Um, we'll have a, today we're going to cover evangelism, a lot of material, but hopefully we can get it all done here in, in one day. Next week, I'm hoping to, uh, where we can actually have a bit of a sharing time uh, within the church and just kind of some of the different things that are going on in, in the church. Uh, then we'll be entering into the Advent season, uh, which will be fun, of course. And then in the New Year's, I'm actually wanting to, to start up a series, uh, kind of a marriage enrichment series based off of Song of Solomon. And uh, that'll be a great one to uh, invite friends, family, uh, couples, um, very applicable for, for singles as well, too. Uh, for people who don't uh, normally attend church, this would be a, a good one to go through. And um, we'll just we'll kind of go through it and decode Song of Solomon. Uh, Song, it's, Song of Solomon is poetry, and so it's a little bit cryptic and hard to say, understand. It's kind of like, um, what was that song? Uh, um, American Pie, you guys know the song, Bye Bye American Pie, Drill My Chevy to Love You, but to love you is dry. You know, and you're kind of like, oh, groovy tunes. I have no idea what that means, you know, and uh, and Song of Solomon is like that. And uh, so we'll just go through and decode it because when, you know, when you're complimenting your spouse, you know, and you're referencing like really large monuments or woodland creatures, it's a little bit odd. And uh, so we're just kind of going to go through and kind of look historically and culturally what they were really saying saying there. But it's a, it's a fantastic journey of, uh, of attraction uh, and dating and courtship and marriage, and it's just it's great. So we'll be starting that in January. Uh, today we're talking about evangelism, and uh, I think I've probably told you this story al- already, but I, I'll, I'm going to tell it to you again. I'll, maybe some of you weren't here last time. Uh, a few years back, we were it was during a Trek training session, and I think it was kind of close to this week, and we had a speaker come in, and he was really good, and he was dynamic, and he was talking about suffering for your faith, and the trekkers were like, yeah, I'll do that, you know, and, you know, they're getting all gung-ho, and, and even one kind of obnoxious guy was like, well, I mean, I just, I just assume that if you're not suffering, you're not doing it right, you know, and all, you know, so, and, and I just kind of took note of, they were kind of talking big. A week later, we have another guy in, and he's talking evangelism, and he floats the idea that we might do kind of a variation of door-to-door. Oh, my land. Like, they just, they weren't having it. Like, just totally freaked out. You know, I, you know, and someone might get offended. Like, we certainly can't do that. And, and so I just kind of let them go for a little while. And then I called them on it, and it was really kind of fun. But I was like, look, you guys, you can't say a week ago, I will die for my faith. And then this week say, yeah, but I don't want to offend anyone. Because I'm pretty sure that if someone's prepared to kill you for your faith, at some point in the journey you offended them, probably a little bit at first, and then it got really bad. So, yeah, it's we the, the word evangelism. We have we have put so much just kind of weight and, and baggage uh, on it that we've really kind of made it this really heavy, really intimidating, ominous thing, and. Um, and this is, and, and it's prolific. The, just kind of another story, you know, within, within um, Canada and the U.S., there's uh, various conferences or regions, right? So I was chatting previously with a co-worker from one of these regions, I will not tell you which one, and we were talking about uh, evangelism and short-term missions, disciple training, and that kind of thing. And this co-worker said that in their region, they cannot use the word evangelism, they cannot teach on evangelism, because 
local churches will push back on it so hard. Okay, now just think of a moment how dysfunctional that is. And I think part of it is that in that region, evangelism had really gotten tightly associated with kind of like a door-to-door type thing. But, and so they would still teach on evangelism, but they just couldn't use that word. Like they had to use words like, we're going to talk about sharing your story or like your faith journey or, you know, like they used kind of these other kind of fuzzy words. But the, the, the resistance to evangelism and, and, and kind of understanding what it is is, is pretty strong. And um, we've just really kind of psyched ourselves out about it. Uh, today I, I want to do three things, though. One is just kind of talk a little bit generically about evangelism, what is it, that kind of thing. Two, I want to address some of these burdens who kind of that I, I think are untrue and I think that are unhealthy that we have really associated with evangelism that just put more weight on us than, than I think is really healthy. And then third, just kind of give some, some practical stuff, some, some reminders on this. But first off, just um, evangelism, big picture. And I think it really ties back to discipleship. Uh, discipleship is the process where we see someone go from not interested in Jesus at all to fully devoted, committed follower of Jesus Christ. And I think the best discipleship and the most well-done discipleship actually enables that person not just to become a follower of Christ, but enables them then to take what they have received and then using their gifts, their skills, their passion, pass that on to others. Um, so for me, discipleship, I've all, I've, for years I've loved this phrase, disciples who make disciples. I mean, for me, that is just kind of the clearest, cleanest, most concise description of what the church is about. We are disciples. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We're, we're, we're committed to Him and to His ways. And we make disciples. And then they make disciples. And then they make disciples. So there's kind of this spiritual reproduction that, that takes place. And for me, how I, how I then kind of see evangelism is evangelism is just one part of that discipleship journey. Evangelism for me really encompasses kind of the introduction to Jesus. Hey, person, have you met this guy? You guys should get to know each other. He's, he's pretty cool. All right, so evangelism is, is kind of that, that introduction. Evangelism is actually something that was initiated by God. If you understand, I, I, love, I love the phrase pursuing people also as a concept of, of evangelism. But I believe that we actually see kind of the predecessor for evangelism all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned. They were embarrassed about it. They hid. And then God comes and pursues them in the Garden. He looks for them. He seeks them out. He comes and, and, and yeah, He seeks them out. Now, when the Israelites were in captivity, God comes and seeks them out and says, Hey, I'm here to rescue you. Jesus. I mean, the, the whole Israelite captivity thing is just the most amazing parallel to our spiritual journey. It just fits wonderfully. Uh, but we're not going to cover that one today. But, but just the way that Jesus comes and says, hey, you guys are in captivity. I'm here to rescue you. Right? It's him pursuing us. But I, I think one of my, my all-time favorite reasons in just kind of understanding uh, evangelism actually comes out of Isaiah 6. Let me read this to you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. 
And above him stood the seraphim, or some kind of angel creature, I think. Each had six wings. Uh, with two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. Uh, one called and said to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken upon from the altar. He touched my mouth. He said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, and it's interesting, it almost sounds like it, it wasn't actually directed to him. He just he overheard a conversation. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Over here. Send me. And he said, go and say this to the people. For Isaiah, this whole thing was born out of his God is awesome moment. Sometimes our motivation for evangelism is our concern for their welfare. Sometimes our motivation for evangelism is just our guilt and that we're supposed to be doing it. Sometimes our motivation for evangelism is simply a sense of obedience, and this is what good Christians do. But I think my favorite is out of Isaiah. It's his God is awesome. May I please be the one to tell others about what I just encountered. The So, uh, I'm not a graphics design person. Um, and believe it or not, this turned out better than I expected. Uh, I don't even know. I Hopefully you guys can see. It, it was great on my computer screen uh, this week when I was working on it. Um, anyways, just bear with me and, and roll with it. Um, so, most of you, though, are familiar with, with this kind of diagram, right? So, you have Holy God on the left, symbolized by the blue cloud, because that's what Microsoft gave me. Um, so you have God on the left, and God is awesome, and he's pure, and he's holy, and he's fantastic. Uh, but then on the left, the stick guy over there, you have man. Um, but then he's separated by sin, and sin was our choice, and that was our bad, and we were the ones who, who welcomed sin. And so there's the separation, and it's we're unable to get to God because of sin. Uh, but the good news is that Jesus died on the cross, and so through the cross and through Jesus, then we have access to um, to God, and we can live with Him forever. Some verses: uh, Romans three twenty three, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans two one, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Uh, Romans six three, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, uh, what else? Acts 16.30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. Uh, John 1.12, Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Lots of verses. I even skipped over some in my notes. Um, very familiar. And I would say that every aspect of this is true and great. However, I would also say that it's incomplete. 
And I think to understand evangelism, you actually have to zoom out the lens a little bit. Because that initial diagram works under the presumption that everyone is right at the point of making a decision. And I don't believe that everyone is right at the decision point. I believe that our, our, for a lot of people, they're on a journey, they're on a spiritual journey, and they're wrestling through some stuff, and it's our responsibility to, uh, to work alongside them. In 1 Corinthians 3, 6, uh, Paul is actually talking about kind of discipleship and, and church planning, but he has this great analogy, and, and he says, you know, and, and he says that Paul planted, Apollos watered, and God made it grow. And I, I, I truly believe that a, a similar thing can, can be ap- applied for evangelism as well, too. I believe that some will plant, that some will water, and some will harvest. See, when we think of evangelism, we typically think of the people who are great at the harvest. They're, they're, they're the ones who are really good at seeing people make that decision and turn to Jesus. But I believe that actually the journey of evangelism, and it's not just the harvest, but also the planting and the watering and journeying with people along this path. Now, there are a couple obstacles along the way. Um, When talking about Jesus, it's helpful to understand people's, uh, to understand their stories, to understand their, their culture, to understand their past, and to understand their worldview. Now, I am kind of just barely of the age where I remember a time when, when the predominant evangelistic method revolved, or message revolved around forgiveness of your sins. And there was a lot of talk about sins, and, and you're a sinner, and you need salvation, and Jesus is the way to that. And during that era, people got that, they understood it, they resonated with it, and they responded to it. Folks, we are seeing a shift And today that message is a lot harder because people no longer really have an awareness of their sins. I mean, even the large kind of evangelistic crusades, those have pretty much gone by the wayside. Today the evangelistic message has changed and and it's more um, encompassing of, you know, God loves you and he values you. Uh, You were created for a relationship with God. Our hearts yearn for something like this, our need for love our desire for intimacy, or our desire for adventure. God has a good plan for us. Now, all this is true, and all the sin talk is true as well. But it's just, you need to understand the culture and the worldview in which you're working with to be able to respond and and give them a message. There are parts of the world where door-to-door evangelism still works really, really well. Fantastic results when they do it. There are parts of the world where it does not work at all. I mean, just dead end. Um, There were, you know, parts of the world, you know, where the large crusades were a big hit. But we're also seeing that in some places that those really don't work anymore. So kind of the the core message, you know, of who Jesus is and our relationship with him, a lot of that stays the same. But a lot of our presentation and our style changes because we need to understand their, their worldview and their background. I mean, if, if someone grows up with an abusive father and you start talking about how God is a good father, I mean, either they're going to have a real hard time or they're really going to resonate with that, right? And so there's just understanding the kind of the, the, their background and their, their uh, cultural um, realities. 
Um, Paul talks about this, 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. He says, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, then I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. To the weak I became weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Also, when Paul is in Athens, you may remember the story where he finds an idol and there's the inscription, you know, idol to an unknown God. And then he proceeds to use that as the launching point in which to his discussion about who Jesus is. So understand their story, understanding their worldview and speak to where they're at. The second obstacle uh, that, that we certainly see uh, in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 10.4, we demolish arguments and every pretension that set itself up against the knowledge of God. Some people do not follow Jesus because they believe the wrong thing. I mean, maybe, maybe it was a lie. Maybe they were intentionally deceived. Maybe they were unintentionally deceived. We don't know. Maybe they have some part of the truth but not the whole truth. Or the truth was distorted. Some lies are personal. Very, you know, kind of uh, lies about their worth or, or how God sees them. And, and, and so there's kind of this argument in, in their head about how God sees them. Some lies are, are large scale and well organized, such as certain false religions or philosophical opinions. And this is where I love the people who are skilled at apologetics. If, if you don't know, apologetics is just a fancy word for, you know, someone defending the Christian faith. And it's a bummer that they go to our word apology, but I don't know, that's just one way. And some people study apologetics through, uh, through uh, philosophy and reason. Some do it through science. Some do it through history. Uh, when I was at seminary, I was privileged to take a class under a, a guy by the name of Paul Chamberlain. And um, he had written a book that we had read in college on Can We Do Good Without God? It is intentionally designed as a very simple read on this. It, it's a good book. Um, but he, is, he studies apologetics, and he debates at a national level. So in Canada, the atheists were having their national gathering, conference thing. I don't know what they do there. I don't know. But anyway, so the atheists were having their national gig. And they invited Paul and one other guy to come in and debate their kind of their top debaters. So Paul got to go to the National Atheist Convention of Canada. I don't know if that's a real name. I just kind of put those words together. So he got to go there and debate. But he, I mean, he has studied this. He, he understands their arguments and the nuances of it. And he understands how to reply and the nuances of the Christian belief. And it's, it's just fantastic and fascinating to hear him talk. Why is it that atheists only seem to debate Christians? Have you ever wondered about that? Or maybe it's because this is the, this, the, the culture here is more Christian. I've never really seen an atheist enter into an argument with like a Muslim or Buddhist. Yeah. I got a few opinions on that that I'll not put on the website or the radio. Um, so some people, for some it, it, it's personal, just lies about their worth or, or what does the, maybe they have a misunderstanding about what the Bible says, this or that. And most of you are equipped. You can handle that. You can speak into that situation. And some of the stuff, some of the arguments or, or lies that they believe may be a little bit bigger and more complex. And maybe you need to read a book 
and that's okay because there are good books out there. So, yeah. The last concept in this diagram is that I believe it's the responsibility of the church to go, to, to meet people where they're at, to find them, uh, to learn where they're at in their journey, and journey alongside them and help them embrace Jesus. And maybe you'll have one person who's able to journey alongside someone for their entire journey. Often ta- oftentimes it's a combination. You get just a part of it. You, you do a little bit of planting. You do a little bit of watering. Maybe you do a little bit of more watering. Maybe you're the harvest dude. I don't know. In Scripture, we see both a come-and-see approach and a go-and-tell approach. And so as a church, we want we want to help. Second thing I want to do this morning is talk about some of the burdens that, that we kind of need to cast off. Uh, some of the lies that, that we believe in. And really, this is kind of more of an in-house thing. I feel like these are things that we tell each other, and they're just, they're, they're untrue. Uh, they're, they're unhelpful. They're unhealthy. And, um, and so I just, I want to go through these and, and really, yeah, just kind of remove the, some of these burdens that, that we put, of, put on one another. Uh, this first one, which is wrongly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, is that at all times, preach the gospel— and if necessary, use words. Okay, for starters, he never said this. They, they actually have no idea where this came from. St. Francis was a part of a preaching order. I mean, they valued preaching. He preached all the time. He was a dynamic communicator. I mean, this is just so, like, not even in his psyche. But my beef with this one, though, is that what we have done is that we have taken this and we have run with it to say, you know what? At all times, just be a super nice person, and then you never have to talk about Jesus again. I mean, really, that's what we do. Our, our evangelistic method is just kill them with kindness for like 30 years and, and never talk about Jesus again. And it puts all the weight and all the responsibility on you. That's the other thing about this phrase I don't like. Your behaviors, your action, your lifestyle carries the entire burden on is God real? Can Jesus save? Is there a God? Did God create the heavens? It just it places all of that on how often you say please and thank you. The other kind of the, the third thing that that I I don't think works for this is that because the it, it places all the burden on, on, on your lifestyle, but the problem is that everyone has, especially uh, when you get outside the Christian faith, everyone has their own version of what good morality looks like. And somehow you're supposed to be the perfect version of a non-Christian good morality standard for all of us. Okay? And it just, it doesn't work. Right? Evangelism must include the spoken word. At some point, the word Jesus is going to have to come out of your mouth. I mean, maybe you can write it in a letter if you're super shy. But at some point, you've got to communicate Jesus. It's not just your lifestyle. The second phrase that, that I think is a bit of a burden is that when we say it's all about relationship. And similar to, to the first burden is that it puts all the weight of effective evangelism on you and your ability to maintain some kind of certain relationship 
and it presumes that you have to have a certain kind of relationship established before you can ever talk about Jesus. Now, I agree that there are times where relationship is beneficial. I get that. Uh, when we were in Abbotsford, Joanne befriended a neat gal, a Nisha, a um, Muslim gal from Fiji. And, uh, I mean, she came in over to our house a couple times. We went over to their house once or twice. Uh, she taught Joanne to cook a couple different meals, for which I am forever grateful. Um, just had a couple neat, uh, neat times hanging out with their family. It threw me off at first in their culture for a child, a sign of respect for an adult male is to call him uncle. So I was like, why does this kid keep calling me uncle? Um, but it's a sign of respect. And, I, you know, I mean, she eventually moved away, and, and we don't know, but Joanne was able to have some, you know, spiritual conversations with her because of the relationship she, she built. But there are times where, this feels weird to say, but there are times where relationship isn't actually necessary. We see that modeled in the book of Acts, uh, uh, starting in Acts 8.26, um, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And uh, so you, so an angel of the Lord approaches Philip, who is one of Jesus' followers. And he says, Philip, I want you to go to a certain road. So he goes there, and, and there's this, this Ethiopian, and he's sitting in his chariot, and he's reading. And so Philip runs over to him, and the guy's reading scripture. And so Philip says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy goes, how can I understand it unless someone explains it to me? And then they have this whole conversation, and Philip explains it to him. And the Ethiopian's like, I'm in. I want Jesus. There's water in the ditch. Let's do this baptism thing now. So Philip baptizes him, and then he's gone. No previous relationship. We're not aware of any follow-up relationship afterwards. There may be times where you just you just kind of come in and and you're just one part of their their journey and story but it doesn't always require a relationship uh, you can share an encouraging word with someone in in the parking lot uh, with someone you just met um, all kinds of stuff uh, the third thing that is untrue and, and, and kind of an unnecessary burden and that is uh, we need to stop blaming other Christians for the world's rejection of Jesus We need to stop blaming other Christians for the world embracing a secular worldview. We are far too hard on other Christians. And and I think we spend too much time and energy berating the church and other Christians and that kind of thing. Uh, When I was in in high school, um, DC Talk released a a CD, Jesus Freaks. Real good. I'm listening to it right now. But in one of the songs, it opens up with this quote. And, and there's kind of this, this guy reading this, this quote. And it says, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. You know, and at the time I was like, oh, that's so good. And it's, it's typically attributed to Brendan Manning. Um, however, it's also attributed to Carl Rayner, who was this, uh, a priest theologian who lived in Europe. Carl Rayner was born first from Jesse, maybe Carl Chavez. I don't know. But I started, when I was working on this, I just, that just kind of started to agitate me a little bit. And, it, and probably the, the thing that should tip us off that maybe this isn't entirely true is that when the guy presumes to speak on behalf of all atheists around the world. Because I started, because my question was, okay, was did, like, did he actually take a survey and research this? 
Or was this just kind of good eloquence and kind of guilt tripping us to a certain kind of behavior? And so I was actually trying to research this and say, like, is there any kind of statistical data behind this? I came across a blog. uh, Yeah, Neil Carter, he is a very pronounced atheist. He responds to this quote. He goes, my Christian friends routinely pass around this much beloved quote by Brendan Manning, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today, to acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door during an unbiblical lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world finds unbelieving. He, he, and, then, and then Neil continues. He goes, pardon me, but no, it isn't. As a card-carrying atheist, I can certify that very few atheists will agree to this. This is just something Christians say to each other because they've grown so accustomed to guilting each other over other things that it makes them love this kind of talk. Preachers shouted from the pulpits, friends shared on their Facebook wall, but I have never once heard an actual atheist say any such thing. Even when debating the subject of theodicy, which is why is there suffering in the world if God exists and is good, I've never once heard an atheist argue that the question hinges on the behavior of Christians. It makes no sense, and it is unhelpful for me to say, you know, Bob down the street has decided not to follow Jesus because of how you live your life. I, one, I don't believe it's true, but two, I just, I just don't find it helpful. And this is, we do this all the time. In subtle ways. I mean, just recently, I'm flipping through a very popular book, you know, and there's a section that very sweetly, very lovingly kind of does this thing of, well, Christians, why are you being so ridiculous? Stop it. The world is falling away because of your behavior. So, I just, not true, not helpful. The fourth thing, and this is this is kind of tied to this as well, too, because one of the messages that often accompanies Christians bashing Christians, is this doom and gloom message that the church is dying in North America. And actually, it's not. And actually, it might even be getting healthier. Ed Setzer was the keynote speaker at the U.S. National Conference. Um, he was also recently interviewed in a preaching magazine. He's, he's a pastor, author, and researcher. This is what he does. I have one of his books. It's just filled with, like, stats and percentages and that kind of thing. Very, very useful book. He was recently at a conference. He's speaking to a couple thousand church administrators. The first slide that he has up says, Christianity is in America is dying. The second slide that he puts up read, said, no real researcher ever. The, um, put up, put up the next slide. Very, very roughly, okay, th- this, is, this is super generical. Let me explain to you what, what we're seeing in America. So on the left-hand side, you have secular or none of the above. You know how you take the survey and they're like, what race are you, what religion are you? And you can say, I'm white, I'm Roman Catholic, I'm Christian, I'm, and they normally throw in like some weird Jamaican religion I can never remember, and, you know, and all these other kinds of things. And then there's a none of the above option, okay? Roughly 25% of those in America will say, I'm secular or I'm none of the above. On the far right, roughly 25%, roughly, in America, you have committed Christians. People who regularly attend church, love Jesus, devoted to him, that kind of thing. But in the middle, what you have, roughly 50%, are non-committal Christians. And these are people who 
who are who would call themselves Christians, but like they never attend church. Uh, they just figure that because they're in North America, they're a Christian, like they're cultural Christian, or maybe they kind of appreciate some of the the cultural values of Christianity, but there's no real relationship with Jesus. Well, it used to be, and how it's been for a long time, is that these nominal Christians or these cultural Christians, next slide, they have aligned themselves with the convictional Christians. And so when they would do the surveys, it felt like 85% of America are Christians. Well, only roughly 25% are actually convictional. A lot of people are just along for the ride because it's culturally advantageous. It used to be, much more so than it is now, it used to be, that if you wanted to run for president, it was very beneficial to say, I am a Christian who regularly attends church. Nowadays, eh, not so much. And even at that, you should probably put some kind of parameters on what you mean by that, right? Like, what if you go to one of the weird churches? What we're seeing, next slide, is that these nominal Christians, these cultural Christians, are shifting their allegiance over to the secular none of the above. All, all according to, to, to Ed's research and, and others. And a f- uh, couple of things that are coming out of this. One is that as they shift their allegiance over to the secular none of the above, for starters, they're, they're kind of just being honest for the first time. Like even Ed says that in his family, for years, his family said, we are Catholic. The reason they said we are Catholic is because they were Irish. They didn't attend church for 20 years. After 20 years of saying we're Catholic but not actually attending the church, they finally said, actually, we're just none of the above. So they just kind of finally owned up and were honest about it. So actually what we see is that people are just kind of owning up and being honest. Now, one of the downsides, though, then, though, is that when we start voting on laws or or governing or how we do some stuff, now the dominant influence is not the Christian worldview, it's the secular worldview. And so kind of at the political level and, and how we operate as, as a community, it's increasingly secular. But actually, the church is staying strong. And kind of depending, maybe it's growing, maybe it's holding steady. And he's actually saying that in some places where this has already happened, the church is actually quite healthy. Like, because the people who are living in this environment, like, they're just, they're more committed, they're more dedicated. And so the, the church is staying healthy. So... The church is not dying. And actually, people are incredibly open to going to church. Uh, I had a great conversation with uh, Daniel Swearing when, when he was here. And I, uh, for his internship, uh, they read this book, um, uh, The Unchurched Next Door by Dr. Tom Rainer, another researcher, professor guy. And they just did a whole bunch of surveys. Because one of the things that were, well, if, if I talk about Jesus, I'm going to be met with a hostile response. Actually, if you want to put some numbers on that, there's a less than 10% chance that you're going to be met with a hostile response. When they did the surveys, they were able to break people into roughly five different categories. First category, they were totally open. It's like, well, finally, I've been waiting for this information. And, and, then, it, and then it kind of gradually shifted to, eh, I'm kind of maybe open it. Only the last 10%, less than 10%, were, actual, were actually like hostile. Meaning, if you invite someone to church, there's a 90% chance that they are going to respond favorably to you. Or at least like a neutral, like quasi-positive response. If you get a hostile response, next nine are going to be good. So that should be encouraging. 
Here's some other stats that they found. 82% of the unchurched are at least somewhat likely to attend church if invited. Only Here's another one. Only 2% of church members invite an unchurched person to church. 98% of the churchgoers never extend an invitation from giving. study including more than 15,000 adults revealed that about two-thirds are willing to receive information from a family member, 56% from a friend or neighbor. 35 indicated that they would be inspired to attend church, quote, if I knew there were people like me there. Most, Most people come to church because of a personal invitation. Friends, we have assumed and psyched ourselves out so much presuming that we're going to be met with hostility or anger or that the the world doesn't want to know all because of our bad behavior actually the numbers are saying people are pretty open to it if you're just willing to go there and and find a church a few practical points and then we'll wrap up you know first off i would say that Evangelism always doesn't necessarily need to be like the full, whole theological gamut. Sometimes it's just interjecting a little bit of Jesus into the conversation. Joanne and I were talking about this. I don't remember this. She had to remind me of this. We were going somewhere. I think it was was at the airport, you know, like you you park and then you take like the bus to the airplane. Is that it? It was some kind of bus. Anyways, some guy, bad foot, and just kind of felt this kind of tugging in my heart to just kind of be like, you know, offer to pray for his foot. All right. It was a little bit nerve-wracking, but I'll probably never see him again, so that's Jesus. Like, hey, yeah, uh, dude, can I pray for your foot? Yeah, totally open to it. Prayed for his foot, said goodbye, left. I don't know where that guy's at in his journey. I don't know what part I displayed. I'm just being obedient to the Spirit's leading. Um... Same thing happened with the car salesman, right? We're driving around the minivan. He's sharing his sob story. You know, oh, you're a pastor. Dude, that's rough. Can I pray for you? No, we didn't buy the car. Um, A little thing to use, you know, if you're wondering, like, when when do I bring in Jesus? When do I invite someone? to church listen for the three knots three knots when you hear one of these that's your cue to just go there in the conversation tactically one i'm not from here or i'm new here a little bit more rare in henderson i know if you're chatting it up with someone they said yeah i'm 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 not from here new here just moved here hey you have a church home what do you mean a church home come hang out with us okay sure normal it's a good time so that's the first knot we're not from here second knot Things are not going well. Great time to say, hey, can I pray for you? Most people will respond pretty favorably to that offer. And do it then and there. Don't be like, hey, can I pray for you? All right. Peace out. I'll do that on my own later on in my closet. Then and there. I mean, you don't have to, like, get down on your knees and get all weird about it. Just stand there, eyes open. Pray for them. They appreciate that kind of thing. Third knot. I'm not attending church or whatever. Oh, you don't have a church home. Hey. Come, come check us out. Come hang out with us. And folks, you know, we're kind of blending two conversations. One is evangelism and one is invitation to church. I mean, let's keep it clear here, right? I mean, attending church isn't your salvation. 
okay, Jesus is your salvation. No, church is just where a bunch of us get together, do some worship. One dude teaches us about scripture, and then maybe like we do lunch after. Okay, so let's let's kind of keep it in perspective on what church provides and what it doesn't provide. But um, anyways, we're just we're mingling in the truth. Last thing, if you are needing to remember the um, kind of the, the, the full gospel message, you know, someone saying, you know, the this is what I do and uh, was taught this by, by someone else and use the hand as an analogy to remember kind of the, the different points of the gospel message. So first up is the thumb. Okay. And the <laughs> a couple weeks ago at the end of the sermon, I don't even remember what I was talking about, but I just remember at the sermon at the end kind of felt like I was supposed to just kind of plug in a little bit of gospel message, kind of salvation message wasn't in my notes at all. All right. You know what I was doing on stage? Okay. I mean, so it's just totally you can do this thumb. Thumb, it's, it's kind of like you're hitchhiking, right? Salvation is a free gift. It's a free ride. Salvation is a free gift from the Lord. You don't earn it. You don't aspire to it. It is free. It is offered to you. Thumb, I'm hitching a ride, okay? Free gift. Lots of verses. I'm going to skip them for the sake of time. Well, I'll, well, I'll just tell you the references. Ephesians 2, 8, and 10. 1 Timothy 2, verses 3, 6. Next finger. Pointer finger, Okay? This is how we accuse people. Okay, this is the finger of accusation. This is the finger of your sin. Okay? Um, I mean, God created the heavens and the earth. Adam and Eve opened the door to sin. We are the ones who brought sin in. No one has any excuse. We're all sinners. All have sinned. Um, and sin equals death. Um, heaps more verses on that. But, but the pointer finger is the finger of accusation. Middle finger, I'll not show you, I'll, I'll put, you know, in the group, okay, the tall one, because um, I don't want to be that guy. Um, middle finger, okay, in my kid's song, they sing about this one as being tall man, okay? It is, it's the tallest one. Middle finger, it is tall, uh, tall man, so it's, it's like a beacon, it's, it's like a lighthouse. What is our beacon? What is our, what is our lighthouse? Our hope is in Jesus, that Jesus died for our sins. Our hope... Our, our beacon, our lighthouse is that Jesus came, he died for our sins, we can be reconciled with God, that's our hope. Fourth finger, ring finger, marriage, commitment, okay, this, this, this is, this is that, that bonding, that reconciliation that united through Jesus Christ. This is where we say, Jesus, I believe in Jesus, he is my Lord, he is my Savior, and it's, yeah, so that's the, 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 the commitment finger. Pinky, pinky can go a, a couple different ways, um, but the way I remember it, though, is like a pinky promise, and there's kind of two promises. One, his promise to you is that you get to spend eternity with him. Secondly, your promise to him is, God, I gave you my sin, but I, I want to give you the, all of my life. See, it's easy to give Jesus our sin. It's a lot harder to give Jesus our life. So the, the pinky is, we've dealt with your sin, Lord. But you also get my life, all of it. So kind of a, a two-way. I'm going to skip the next part, uh, the, the, the sinner's prayers, three phrases. Um, however, let me just say that, that, that if you, um, you know, well, you know, we lead them to Christ. Uh, some great stuff if you want it on repentance, renunciation. The other thing, too, though, is that I would say that if you are privileged to walk someone through this process, 
right away take them around to your friends and have them share their story. And your friends better respond positive. Well, what this does is it, pr- it practices and it gets them in the habit of sharing their story. So if you are privileged to, to do this, walk people through this journey of practicing sharing their story, right? I mean, if it happens, you know, on a Sunday morning, introduce them to people who you know will respond well. Introduce them and say, hey, so-and-so has a great story. Hey, did you just hear what happened? Don't tell the story for them. Let them tell the story and just kind of get in that, that practice of doing so. Erwin McManus is, an, is another name that, that you should probably Google on this topic. He has some great videos uh, about I- evangelism. And, um, and I was watch, watching some of his stuff, and he just had some, some amazing words on this. But one of the ones that I was so struck by, when Jesus came to earth, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. He wasn't, like in some, we often, it's easy to interpret that as kind of like bad news. But you need to understand, he wasn't delivering the bad news kind of from his perspective. He was delivering bad news of our reality. And that news that he was saying, what Jesus was saying, is that I am the only one who's coming for you. You are separated. You are in sin. And all these other people who are clamoring for your attention, clamoring for your devotion, none of them can actually save you. I'm the only one who's coming for you. See, when we think of hell, we think of God's punishment. Kind of interesting, but there, Scripture actually says that hell was created for the demons. But God will not stop you from going there if you are determined to do so. God's desire is that you live at the highest level of life possible. That is his desire. His desire for us is is life. God takes no pleasure in punishment. I'm not aware of any verses where God punishes mankind and enjoys it. I'm not. His desire for us is life. And Jesus comes and says, I'm the only one coming. So, that's a powerful message, and it's one that that we need to share with others as we are seeking. Heavenly Father, thank you for, thank you that, that, that you came. 